From the Roatan Center for Global Affairs at Millbury College, this is New Frontiers. I'm Charlotte Tate, Associate Director of the Roatan Center. New Frontiers podcasts highlight research undertaken by Middlebury scholars and others on matters of international and global concern. Everything is fair game. From big tech, environmental conservation, and global security, to religion, culture, and changing work patterns. In this episode, economist Akila Rao joins Mark Williams, director of the Roatan Center, to discuss a global problem that's literally out of sight, the congestion and debris in outer space, and why an economic approach to address this problem could help manage it successfully. I'm really pleased to be joined here on New Frontiers by Akil Rao, who is an assistant professor of economics at Middlebury College. Some of his research is focused on the economics of infectious diseases, certainly a hot topic during this COVID pandemic, as well as the field of computational economics. But today, I'm going to be asking Akil to help us understand what for me is a somewhat unusual realm of economic study and research, and that realm is outer space. In particular, we'll spend some time talking about an article he co-authored that was recently published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. It's all about the space industry, its growth, and how economic tools, rather than technological fixes, might better address some of the problems that have been created by a growing private sector space industry. The article is titled, Orbital Use Fees Could More Than Quadruple the Value of the Space Industry. Akio Ro, thank you so much for stopping by today, and welcome to New Frontiers. Thanks for having me here, Mark. We're glad you're here. Your research here is in outer space, and I mean, you know, you're not a physicist. You are not an astronomer. Uh, you're not even an engineer. Nope. You're an economist. So let's start at the beginning. How did you become interested in studying the economics of outer space? What triggered your curiosity about space and economics? So I grew up in Northern California and South India, Mm -hmm. and exchange rates were something that really fascinated me when I was a kid. Like, I didn't understand why the paper in one place meant different amounts of paper in the other place. And so that got me kind of interested in economics to begin with. From there, I started thinking a lot about water. Mm -hmm. And so when I went to graduate school, I wanted to study water resources. Uh, Southern California, where I went to undergrad, has severe water problems. South India, where I grew up, also has severe water problems. So it just seemed kind of like a natural thing to focus on, that like, here's this scarce resource, here's this science of scarce resources, let's study scarce resources. But I went to grad school at Boulder, and Boulder does a lot of aerospace And so at some point, I was walking around, and I saw a lot of space-related stuff. I was reading some short stories, and I saw some things about space debris. You know, these two just kind of connected, and I thought, well, I wonder if anybody's written about the economics of orbital space. Interesting. Started looking into it, and I thought, well, you know what? This is kind of like water stuff. It's a scarce resource. It needs to be allocated. Not a lot of folks have written about it. Maybe I'll write, like, a one article about it, right? Like, how much could there really be to say about this? And it's just kind of been what I've been doing since. So this developed for you, uh, the convergence of economics and outer space developed while you were in graduate school. That's right. So I I think it was sometime in my first or second year of graduate school when I really started thinking about this. And then 
uh, got good feedback in brown bag seminars and stuff. And, and looking for a dissertation topic and so forth. And yeah, perhaps this might be it. Yeah, that's that's pretty much how it went. You know, I, I just I really didn't think that it would be that big a topic. Uh-huh. But the more I looked into it, the more questions I found. And so now this is a thing that I work on. Space is a pretty big place. And that's what I hear. <laughs> um, well, before we really dive into your article and the argument that you make, could you help us understand a bit more about the private sector and outer space. I think a lot of people might have heard something about the Blue Origin's new Shepard flights. Blue Origin being the aerospace firm that's owned by Amazon founder Jeff Bezos, and the new Shepard flights being those commercial space tourism flights that have taken a handful of um, incredibly wealthy people and celebrities into outer space as tourists. But when your article talks about the space industry, you're not really talking about space tourism. You're talking about some other aspects of that industry. Is that right? That's right. That's right. So what we're really talking about are satellites and the supporting infrastructure that makes satellites work. So Mm -hmm. we're talking about rockets. We're talking about uh, receiver stations on the ground that transmit signals to and from satellites. That's what we're talking about. The, The space tourism business is interesting and it certainly captures the public imagination. Yeah. But if you think about this in terms of shares of value that it generates, it's tiny. It's probably a decimal point, but it's not much bigger than that yet. So the the number of people who are benefiting from the satellites far exceeds the number of people who are benefiting one way or another from space tourism. That's right. And I mean to get a sense of the magnitudes here, the people who are benefiting from space tourism in sort of the direct sense it's the folks who go up. If you want to be a bit more generous, you can say, well, there's folks who work at the companies and, you know, they get paid and mm-hmm. they get revenues. And so they're benefiting, too. Um, but it's hard to go much farther than that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you think about satellites in orbit, though, there's a ton of people. So anyone who's ever used remote sensing imagery or who's ever benefited from some decision making somewhere having access to a satellite picture, you can think about folks who in the California wildfires in 2020, folks getting evacuated had some benefit from space-based tools because mm-hmm. U.S. Forest Service used satellite imagery to coordinate their responses. Any, right now, anyone who's looking for uh, their best friend's new house when they're trying to drive to <laughs> right, it. That's right. That's right. Google Maps. And you know, now if you think about Ukraine, well, satellite imagery is playing a huge role in the conflict. So the, the number of folks who benefit from satellite imagery uh, alone, that's one product that a satellite can produce, is easily on the order of millions of people. That's a different ballpark than yes, people yes. going to space. We're talking about tourism. orders of magnitude difference. Um, can you clarify a bit more about what's been going on in outer space right now, and especially why why economists or, or others should be concerned about things that they can't even see in terms of how corporate actors and states have been using outer space. uh, What's wrong with the status quo? So what's been going on over the last 50 years is a buildup of junk. Junk. Junk, right. So so we can kind of describe this more scientifically and technically, but like at a very basic level, we've got a bunch of folks showing up at the campsite and not cleaning up after themselves and leaving a bunch of junk behind. And that's, that's what humans have been doing in orbital space since the dawn of the space age. Mm-hmm. So there's a bunch of stuff like dead satellites, uh, bits of rockets. Uh, so, so when you launch a rocket, there's this upper stage that inserts the satellite into the target orbit. It does kind of those last adjustments. That gets left behind. That's a pretty big thing per launch. 
there's nuts and bolts from satellites. There's bits of fuel that have leaked out of satellites. Mm. There's tools that astronauts have lost on spacewalks. There's a lot of junk that's up there. I see. And so there's just been this ongoing buildup of junk. Okay. As I was reading your article, um, you say that the buildup of debris or junk is kind of a classic tragedy of the commons problem. And for all of our listeners who aren't really familiar with this concept or, or maybe haven't thought about it in some years, could you briefly explain what the tragedy of the commons is and, and why it poses a unique type of problem? Sure. So the tragedy of the commons, uh, that term is referencing an article uh, by Garrett Hardin, I think, in Science in the 1950s. And the, the argument in the article was that if you have a scarce resource where users of the resource are not in some way coordinated and are able to use it, uh, I'm putting air quotes here, unchecked, that they're going to really spoil the resource and mess it up. So, so this was Hardin's argument, and he was applying it in a pretty racist way to people having kids and the natural resources of the world. And I should note that the, the fundamental argument that he makes about like pastures in England, like that's something that historians and others have found many issues with. Mm. So it's not clear that Hardin's argument goes through on the historical merits, and it's not clear that his arguments really describe the general situation of all resources in the class that he was focusing on. But what his arguments do describe, uh, which we focus on here, is the case of a resource which is, in fact, uncoordinated. So, so what we in, in by economics— By uncoordinated, you mean by the users. By the users. That's exactly right. So what we in economics would call an open access commons. Mm -hmm. So a, a common pool resource in economics is a resource where my use subtracts from your use and vice versa. And we don't have the ability to secure excludable rights to the resource. So you can think about these water bottles that we have on the table. I drink the water in this bottle. You can't drink it. But we do have some notion of excludable rights where I can say, look, this is this is my water bottle. You can't drink from this one, and you can say the same thing about a different water bottle. Right. Now imagine a case where we couldn't say that, where you know, you're free to just grab my water bottle at any time, and I'm free to grab your water bottle at any time, and there's no sort of notion that we would say this is yours or mine. Mm -hmm. Well, then in that case, we might expect that we would end up drinking more water or depleting the water bottles faster than we otherwise would. That because I'm unable to have some sense of security in the notion that the water will still be there in 20 minutes, I'm going to drink more faster than I otherwise would. Because if I don't drink it, it's gone. So to economists, this, this term open access is a really important modifier on the term commons. The term commons is used across many disciplines, mm -hmm. and it refers to, broadly speaking, some kind of communally held property. But what's really important to economists are the institutions that govern the use of that property. And so open access is one particular institution under which anyone is free to use the resource in any way they see fit, so long as they have the ability to do so. So think of open access as uh, a formalization of what people usually mean when they use a term like the Wild West. Mm -hmm. So outer space right now has uh, characteristics of an open access commons. As a side note, I think that Hardin's article is maybe better understood as describing the tragedy of open access rather than the tragedy of the commons broadly. So in outer space, because we have these open access institutions to use orbital space, 
my co-authors and I argue that we are seeing something like what Hardin was describing in his article happening there. I'd, I'd like to sort of pull the discussion back towards a way that you described the issue, the problem in outer space. You said that there's a lot of junk, space yeah. junk up yeah. there. Okay, I'll play devil's advocate. Come on, let's be, let's get real. Um, how much stuff is really up there? As space is a huge place, how much of a problem is this in reality? You may you may have seen this uh, recently. Elon Musk had a, a claim that there's room in orbital space for billions of satellites. There's no issues at all uh, with any kind of congestion up there. And I think that you know, there's some, there's a grain of truth to that. Space is big. That's for sure, unquestionably true. Uh, right now in orbit, there's on the order of 27,000 officially cataloged pieces of debris floating up there. Most of those are about 10 centimeters softball, roughly, or larger. Uh, that's to do with the limits of our tracking system. So mm -hmm. we can't really detect things smaller than that uh, in most locations in orbital space. And so there's probably a bunch more stuff that's smaller than that. Uh, almost surely there is. We just can't really see it, and so mm -hmm. we don't really know how much there is or what the distribution over sizes is. But coming back to the question, like, space is big. Why is this a problem? Right. I mean, the American West is huge. Los Angeles still has traffic jams. People want to be in places where there is value, and often that means that people are going to cluster in the same places. So there are regions in orbital space, in low Earth orbit, 100 to 2,000 kilometers above mean sea level. There are regions there that are fairly congested. So you could think about the particular orbital paths, the sun-synchronous orbits that remote sensing satellites use. These are very special orbits because they ensure that shadows are always in the same place when a satellite crosses over a, a patch of the Earth every day. Mm -hmm. So if you've got a satellite in a sun-synchronous orbit that's passing over this building, it'll always pass over this building at the exact same time so that the shadows look the same, so that you can start to do some inference on what's actually there without worrying about shadows getting in the way. So that's a really valuable orbit. There's a ton of remote sensing satellites that all tend to cluster in sun-synchronous orbits. Because those orbits would be most beneficial for the function of that's the exactly satellite. Right. That's exactly right. Okay. And so that's the issue. It's not that there isn't space. Mm -hmm. It's that the space that we want is, there's only so much of it. It's sort of like real estate in exactly um, like real estate. San Francisco yes. or Boston. Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, okay. Well, this sort of brings up a housekeeping question. When you think about housekeeping for outer space, who keeps track of this debris, this junk that you're talking about? If a company or a nation state wants to launch a satellite, where do they mm -hmm. turn to find out whether the proposed orbit that they're contemplating is uh, one that's safe or not? Yeah, so there's there's a bunch of layers in the question that you asked that uh, I'll try to answer in the appropriate order. So at one level, there's a UN registry of objects. If I launch a satellite, then I'm going to, I should at least, tell the registry that, hey, I've put this satellite in this orbit, and I'll keep you updated on what happens with it if I move it somewhere else or, or what have you. That's an entirely voluntary disclosure. And so there are a bunch of objects, uh, many of these objects presumed to have a military function, which are not on the registry. And the registry is only for satellites or is, for other debris? It's for satellites. Okay. And so to the extent that a piece of debris was once a productive active satellite, uh, it will also be in the registry. 
But to the extent that there's, you know, bits of fuel that leaked out, that's not going to be in the registry. And discarded. Discarded nuts and bolts or what have you. That's not really going to be Components and so forth. Uh, For that stuff, just physically tracking it, there's a network of sensors. Uh, There are several networks of sensors, actually. The one that is widely regarded as the best is operated by the U.S. Department of Defense. And so this is a military network of sensors that tracks objects in orbit. Mm -hmm. The U.S. makes this data publicly available, again, up to certain restrictions. So U.S. military satellites, for example, do not often show up in this record. And they make this available as sort of a public service. There are also a number of companies that are starting to offer tracking services. Oh, really? Yeah. So there's there's one called Leo Labs that's doing this. Um, Steve Wozniak, one of the the Apple founders, started a new one called Privateer that is also trying to do this. I wonder if they have the capacity at this point to measure as much debris as, say, DOD does. I don't know. I really don't know. I think that they're working towards that capacity. And DOD itself is actually looking to uh, offload some of this function onto commercial partners. Hmm. So one of the things that the Trump administration did was pass a series of space policy directives. They were actually very active in the space policy realm. And I think it was Space Policy Directive 2, or maybe it was 3, that handed, uh, that said that the space situational awareness function should be moved from defense to Department of Commerce, mm. and that eventually that should be handled by some private actors. Interesting. Okay, well, it sounds to me as if there's a uh, type of a traffic management problem going on in outer space. That's right. And, and your article seems to suggest that this traffic management problem is, is also really an environmental policy issue. How would that be? Why, why might we rightly classify it in that fashion? There's a few ways to get to that conclusion. One is to say that it's an environmental policy problem because outer space is an environment that humans use. And because it's an environment that humans use, we should think of this region um, in the sort of lens that we use for other areas that humans use. We shouldn't spaces. pollute it. We shouldn't pollute it, right? That's that's one way to think about it, one way to get to that conclusion. Another way is to say that, look, this is an environmental policy problem because it has the characteristics of one. There is a productive activity that humans do there. That productive activity produces a residual, a pollution product, debris. And that's what happens with lake management. That's mm-hmm. what happens mm-hmm. with atmosphere management. So why shouldn't we fit orbit management into that same bucket? Great. Thank you. Uh, let's get into the heart of your article itself. You talk a lot about orbital use fees in the article. Can you explain to the listeners uh, what an orbital use fee is and, and how would it work? Yeah, so I think the easiest way to think about an orbital use fee is going back to that camping analogy. If you want to go to a campground, you're going to pay a fee to use it. If you litter at the campground, then... Presumably, you clean up after yourself. And if you don't, you pay a fine. Mm -hmm. And that fine is meant to deter littering. And it's also meant, in some part, to cover some of the costs of cleanup. That's kind of the idea of an orbital use fee. That when you put a satellite into orbit, you're going to pay a fee that grants your satellite the right to access the site. That fee is also going to go towards incentivizing you to keep the site clean. If you pollute more, if you create more debris, you pay a higher fee. If you reduce the amount of debris you generate, you pay a smaller fee. And so in that way, it's really trying to align your incentives with an environmental sustainability incentive to keep the orbit clean. Who would the fee be paid to? To whom? 
So there's there's many ways that you could implement this. Um, sorry, I'm going to go on a brief tangent here about space law. Objects in outer space are regulated by the state in which they were launched. So the, the launching state is the authority for the object. So okay. if I launch a satellite from the U.S., the U.S. is the state that holds authority over my object. And so in one version of this orbital use fee, I would pay my OUF to the United States. Mm -hmm. I think that that's probably an easier way to make it work than to build an international orbital use fee collection agency in the UN or something like that. But, you know, in theory, you could do that too. There's there's nothing really in the theory that we discussed, uh, that we laid out, that requires you to pay the fee to one or the other specific entity. What's really important in getting the orbit users to use the resource right is that they pay the fee. Is the fee a one-time fee? Is it something that is paid annually? How would that work? So it's a recurring fee. Uh, every, let's say, year, uh, you could cut it into finer increments. That's fine, too. Uh, every year that your satellite's in orbit, you're going to pay this fee. Mm -hmm. If you want to stop paying the fee, pull your satellite out of orbit. Interesting. Uh, you and your co-authors refer to something called the Kessler syndrome. Mm -hmm. uh, what is that, and how does this concept influence the way that you analyze orbital use? So the Kessler syndrome is this idea that came about in the 1970s. Um, a NASA scientist named Donald Kessler and another one named Burton Corpolet, they wrote this paper talking about what would happen if the debris in orbit built up to a density where debris can start colliding with other debris. So one thing that we haven't really talked about here is why we should care about debris in space. And the issue is that stuff in space goes really fast. There's, there's a common, I think, sense that you go to space by launching a rocket that pushes you upwards, and that's only half true. Partially you're going upwards, but partially you're also starting to fall and continuously miss the Earth. So you're also going sideways, and you're going sideways at a tremendous speed, something on the order of 17,500 miles per hour. So when stuff in orbit collides, like it's going really fast, and it, it's not going to come out of it in one piece. Right. That's bad, because if it doesn't come out of it in one piece, now there's a whole bunch of other fragments that are also going very fast that can also hit something else. And, you know, to the extent that we want our satellites to keep functioning, we should maybe not want them to get hit by junk. Seems like a thing we might want. The Kessler syndrome is this idea that what if there was so much debris that debris can hit other debris and generate new debris in a kind of self-sustaining cascade without any human intervention required. Like, we could wave a magic wand that pulls every single productive satellite out of orbit, and there's still enough junk left up there to keep producing new junk year over year for, I don't know, the next century or something like that. So that's the idea of the Kessler syndrome. You can think of it as analogous to runaway uh, climate change. If enough carbon gets into the atmosphere, then it triggers some mechanisms like, you know, permafrost melts and methane gets out of the, right. the clathrates. And that triggers more greenhouse gas release and so on and so on. So the Kessler syndrome posits that there is a tipping, a tipping point, point That's at right. some point. That's right. And so this has been uh, verified in a number of analytical and simulation studies. Uh, to the extent that we're able to observe this happening, it seems like it's already begun in some orbital regions. So really? there's the 750 to 850 kilometer region. There was a missile test there like 2007, 2008. 
time frame around then, right. uh, the Chinese government blew up one of their own weather sensing satellites to show that they had the capacity to blow up satellites. Uh, so that anti-satellite missile test uh, is widely understood to have generated enough debris there to have kept a cycle of debris production going. Now, it's important to note that this is not like, uh, if you've seen the movie Gravity, this is not like that. Mm -hmm. This is not like all of a sudden, two days from now, all of orbital space is totally unusable because the cascade started and it just goes like a flash. This is a slow-moving catastrophe. It's probably going to take 30 to 50, maybe even 100 years for you know, some of those regions to become fully unusable. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay. You know, I have never really heard, <laughs> to be honest, about an orbital use fee for outer space. Perhaps that's because I'm just ill-informed on the topic. As far as I can tell, it's something that's never been tried before uh, in outer mm -hmm. space. So I'm curious, are there some other examples, uh, perhaps from other sectors, where environmental policies analogous to an orbital use have been tried? And if there are, what's been the result? How well have they worked? Yeah, so, so an orbital use fee, I think you should understand this as one among a suite of policies that are in some sense equivalent. These are what I call natural capital pricing policies. So these are policies that say we have some kind of capital that nature has given us. It's currently available in a way where folks can use it without having to pay a market price. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you go chop down some trees, you go out into the high seas and you grab some fish, things like that. And the idea here is really just that, well, you know, if you had to pay a price for it, you're going to think a little bit more carefully about your use than if you didn't have to pay a price for it. And so there's many different implementations. You can think about a cap and trade system. That's a kind of natural capital pricing policy. So in, in a climate change context, a carbon tax is maybe the thing that's closest to an orbital use fee. Okay. But it is in some sense equivalent to a cap and trade system. It's just that the international legal situation is such that property rights for orbital space seems like a far more distant prospect than taxes for using orbital space. And if we were to focus on the efficacy of these mm -hmm. analogous policies and other policy realms, uh, can you speak to that? Also, yeah, they seem to work. There are issues. So let me, let me get into some examples here. Uh, the EU has an emissions trading system. So this is the EU ETS. It's a, it's a cap and trade kind of uh, carbon market. So firms can buy permits to emit carbon dioxide in the EU. They can trade these permits. Uh, year over year, the total number of permits ratchets down slowly. Firms either pay a higher price for each permit, or they choose to not get a permit and then reduce their emissions so that they're in compliance. Mm -hmm. The EU ETS seems to have worked. It seems to have brought emissions down. I'm saying worked, but I should, I should put a caveat here, which is that it's worked at achieving its own goals. So the EU ETS says that it'll achieve an X percent reduction. It achieves an X percent reduction. Now you can say, well, you know, an X percent reduction isn't what we need. We need like a 10X reduction. Sure. And by that light, if you say, well, we, it hasn't achieved a 10X reduction, you could say it hasn't worked. But as far as meeting the goals that it sets goes, it's done that job. The California cap and trade market is another example of this. California has a market for capping greenhouse gas emissions. It has successfully blown past the target that it set for itself. Right, right. So is this why you also said that the orbital use fee was part of a suite? That's right. That's right. So, so you could think about an orbital use fee as literally a tax. 
you could set it up as a tax with some kind of rebates and some kind of tradable permits. Mm -hmm. Maybe it makes sense for the tradable permits to be for actors within one administrative unit like the United States. Maybe not. There's lots of flexibility that system designers have here in implementing the policy. Okay. So another question that comes to mind, given what you we've been discussing, is the extent to which using orbital use can ameliorate the totality of the problem that's there, debris that mm -hmm. has been there for quite a while. Mm -hmm. I would imagine some of this stuff is pretty old stuff. It's been yeah. up there for a long time, um, perhaps even put up there by actors who no longer exist, like yeah. the Soviet Union. Yeah. How does one rectify that aspect of the problem? How do you address um, the environmental fallout of space junk by using orbital use fees, uh, particularly the legacy debris problems? Yeah, so the legacy debris problem is an interesting one because a fee isn't going to do anything about that directly. Exactly. It's just not. Uh, and that's not what it's trying to do. Uh, now, it will affect it indirectly through a couple channels. First, we have really robust evidence across a number of different sectors that when you put natural capital pricing policies into place, you incentivize clean innovation. So when we start charging power plants for emitting carbon into the atmosphere, mm -hmm. pretty soon they get pretty good about reducing the amount of carbon they emit into the atmosphere, whether that means taking innovations that were kind of on the fence, hadn't really been deployed yet, and deploying them, or whether that means putting money into R&D to develop new innovations that will let them stay in compliance and reduce their costs. So an orbital use fee would have the same effect, we think, for orbital space, that it would incentivize the development of clean technologies. And we really need these clean technologies because right now there is no scalable system for removing debris from orbit. There are some companies that are trying to develop things that will remove large pieces of debris. Uh, there are some folks who are talking about ways to remove small pieces of debris. But there is no one yet who has both a technology and a business model that would let them pull this stuff down. If given the correct incentive structure, then firms, presumably states as well, who mm -hmm. are operating and putting satellites into orbit will become more conscious about, about littering. That's right. And then in the aggregate over time, while you may not be decreasing the legacy debris, you won't be necessarily adding to it, at least not at the same rate. You won't be adding to it, and you'll be developing the technologies that you need to remove it. Okay. And once you've got those technologies, removing the legacy debris actually helps uh, reduce your orbital fee liability because it reduces the risk of a collision on orbit. Now, what's really important with this orbital use fee is to get the numbers right. So we spend a lot of time in the paper figuring out how to calculate these numbers. And, you know, it's an order of magnitude approximation, but it's still, as far as we can tell, the best numbers that are out there. You want to charge a fee that gets people to internalize the amount of the cost that they're pushing onto others. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So to put it a bit differently, we don't want a fee that's so large that it starves the space industry, that it kind of kills it in the crib. We don't want that. We don't want a fee that's so small that people don't pay attention to what they're doing. Mm -hmm. We want a fee that's just right so that people say, hey, I'm going to do this thing, and this thing is going to have all these impacts on all these other folks. Let me factor that into my bottom line. Let me see whether the thing that I'm doing passes the cost-benefit test once I add all of the costs that I'm imposing on others into that calculation. I see. And so part of those costs is the risk that a piece of debris that you put up there or that your defunct satellite 
it contributes to a cascade of collisions and generates more debris in the future. Well, if we remove all that legacy debris, that reduces that risk, that reduces your fee liability. Hmm. Um, it's pretty interesting, actually. Uh, I just thought of another question, uh, maybe perhaps a vexing one. If, if countries really do start taxing, regulating their satellite sectors, like you and your co-authors suggest, won't the private companies just sort of pack up and leave for less strict countries? I mean, I isn't the solution that you're proposing really unworkable until orbital use fees are more broadly adopted by most states in the world? Yeah, so this is this is uh, what we call the leakage problem in, in economics. Um, and it's it's a real problem, right? Like, it's a real thing that people worry about. Uh, I mean, I guess I'd, I'd address this in two ways, right? One is you can look at this by analogy, right? There's there's a very clear analogy to tax rates and wealthy individuals that, you know, if you raise the capital gains tax, then folks are going to leave and stop innovating in the United States. They'll go elsewhere. I mean, if that were actually true, we would see almost all wealthy individuals concentrated in whichever country has the lowest tax rates. And eventually, pretty soon, we'd see all countries racing to the bottom for a zero tax rate. That's not what we see. Mm -hmm. To some extent, there are wealthy individuals in countries, despite high tax rates, who stay there despite high tax rates. I mean, really what I think is going on here is that there's other things too. The taxes aren't the only things in the calculus. If you're a company that wants to, you know, do space stuff broadly, launch some satellites, uh, provide imagery, provide some value-added services on top of the imagery, uh, machine learning on the imagery, whatever. You need access to a talent pool, so you need to have a bunch of engineers who can do stuff. Many of these goods are what are called dual-use goods. They can be used for military purposes as well. Mm -hmm. So again, this imagery is a great example, right? You can use satellite imagery to detect fires, and respond to wildfires. You can also use satellite imagery to detect troop movements and position your forces accordingly. Right. So these dual use goods are very, very tightly regulated in pretty much every country around the world. If you're in the US and if you want to serve the US market, you have to jump through a whole bunch of regulatory barriers, all of which are more onerous than paying like, I don't know, 0.1% of your profits in a tax. That, in some sense, is the easiest barrier that you have to jump through because you just send the money off, you send the check off, and you're done. You don't have people coming in and checking that you're in compliance, that you know you don't have foreign nationals with compromised allegiances working for you or whatever they get worried about, right? Right. Trying to manage orbital use for the good of everybody, it, that seems like an inherently global problem. It is. Uh, it, it's a really large problem. And, and I wonder if you would agree uh, with that, and I think you, you just did, but doesn't it then follow that trying to push for orbital use fees before there's global cooperation or an international treaty, isn't that like putting the cart before the horse? Don't you need to get the cooperation first? Don't you need to get a consensus amongst the states who would be collecting these fees? I, I think that's a that's a good question. I think it's actually an open question. I don't know what the answer is. I don't know what the right sequencing of events is. I mean, I guess I'll say this. There's some in the space community who say that we shouldn't worry about environmental policy until there's a big debris event. Right. And then there's some who take a maybe more uh, realist take that, like, we aren't going to end up worrying about this stuff until there's a big debris event, uh, which are two different positions. I think we should worry about space policy before there's a big debris event, precisely because it's so rare to have a chance to get ahead of an environmental problem when we know good policy tools. 
we almost never have that opportunity. Mm -hmm. But to your point about international agreements, I mean, I don't know, maybe maybe if the U.S. starts implementing these orbital use fees, that's the, the seed that's necessary to start building these agreements. This, the field of space law is a very active field. There's a ton of folks in it. And broadly, when I talk to space lawyers who work in this area who are trying to negotiate agreements and norms of uh, orbital space use, they say that, yeah, you know, things are deadlocked. The, the UN is the body that things have to go through. Uh, there's UN COPUAS, the Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. Nothing really happens there. Folks spend years and years arguing over, like, details of language in an agreement. And, you know, that's just not at the timescale that we need for yes. these agreements. And so, yeah, I mean, I think if someone can move faster through a tax policy route, they don't need to go through the UN for that. And if they can get folks to agree then they can get folks to agree. And that's like any other multilateral or bilateral set of negotiations. It can go faster. Well, let me ask you this. Are you uh, relatively optimistic that we will see something akin to what you and your uh, colleagues are advocating, that we will see some type of environmental policy adopted to address the problem of space junk, uh, first, if you're optimistic about that, and second, Given that there's a variety of forms that this might take and uh, different ways it might be achieved, what do you see as the most likely route that this will happen? Yeah, so I think someone will do something. I think people are trying to do things. So um, A state? A or? state. So, so focusing on, I guess, the U.S. and the EU right now. The EU, I think, is a leader in regulation. The European Space Agency has put a lot of resources into building the technical tools that are necessary to provide these types of natural capital pricing policies and other environmental policies. Okay. Um, now, they don't have the same kind of market for space services that the United States does, and they don't have the same kind of supply side. And not just, There's just not nearly as many companies trying to build rockets, for example, in the EU as there are in the U.S., trying to build satellites in the mm -hmm. EU as there are in the U.S., now, the U.S. has also been trying to do stuff. So recently, uh, in 2020, the FCC issued a notice of proposed rulemaking that they were thinking about asking for a bond, a performance bond, they called it. So this is like you launch the satellite, you pay this bond into the FCC account, you deorbit the satellite, you get the money back. Hmm. And, you know, this was kind of a napkin sketch of an idea that they had put out there, and the industry very quickly came out and said, you know, no, 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 we don't need this. We don't need anything that would increase our costs, which I, that's exactly what I would expect. Uh, so, so that's not really surprising, and that didn't really go anywhere. But more recently, the uh, Office of Science and Technology Policy at NASA has been putting together efforts to study the problem more. I think that we'll probably see something happen in the U.S. that is more than just, we recommend you follow these guidelines. Do you think that um, it's likely that there will be serious cooperation and coordination amongst the states most likely to uh, be utilizing satellites? I'm thinking of China, perhaps, right. along with the United States. Will that type of interstate cooperation in this global commons be something that would be realized? I don't know, because I think that you know, the U.S. and the EU can cooperate. The U.S. can cooperate with Canada, sure. Uh, I don't see how the U.S. is going to be successful at cooperating with Russia, for example, 
in the next five years on these issues. I think it would be great if they could, but I don't know that they would. And similarly, I think there's real challenges that have nothing to do with space involving U.S.-China cooperation. So I don't know. I mean, you study this stuff. Like, do you see U.S.-China cooperation happening? I see it as being in the broad general good, but states have their own distinct interests. Right. And, and those interests, in the best of times, they align mm-hmm. so that great powers can cooperate and coordinate their actions uh, toward the greater good. But those are infrequent, right. and, and I don't see uh, a lot of that happening. Right. And so the, that comes back then to the question of how feasible is this proposal if a major player, I don't mean to be picking on China, but yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll use China as a major player, is not part of the game. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's a great question. So there's two, there's two pieces here. The first is that partial implementation is better than no implementation. And so to the extent that the U.S. is able to do things as a big market, uh, if the U.S. implements something where it's like, you got to pay this fee, you got to post this bond if you want access to the U.S. consumer market. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty big lever. Yeah, I'd agree. I can't think of a single satellite internet constellation uh, that has an actual commercial business plan that is even remotely close to viable without access to the U.S. consumer market. Hmm. So that's, I think, a big lever there. Uh, Akil, this has been a really, really fascinating discussion. As someone for whom the stars have always intrigued me since I was a boy, uh, but has never studied the economics of outer space, uh, this has just been a fascinating discussion. I appreciate you spending time with us today. Uh, Where's your research leading you next? What are you working on now that um, our listeners may want to keep an eye on down the line? Yeah, so there's there's two questions here, I think, that maybe of interest to folks listening to this. One is exactly the question that you raised earlier. What's the right sequencing of these measures? To what extent does an orbital use fee policy, for example, make an international treaty to pull a bunch of debris down or keep debris from crossing some level become more or less likely? So this is this is work that I've been doing actually with the student at Middlebury, Aditya mm-hmm. Jain. He's graduating this year. Phenomenal student. Uh, he's going off to the University of Chicago to do amazing things at uh, a pre-doctoral program. That's wonderful. So so this, I think, is, is really important research, and I think this will help us understand the right order of operations for doing these kinds of policies. Okay. The other is studying the effects of events like missile tests uh, on collisions in orbit. It's now at a very granular level, satellites maneuver out of the way when they think there's going to be a collision. There's a lot of uncertainty involved. It's a very technical thing. It is, as I say, literally rocket science. Um, Sounds like it's not easy to do either. Not easy at all. Yes. And, you know, when, when you do this, it's like, I guess think about, like, you're driving on the road, and someone throws a, I don't know, a bottle out their window while you're on the, the freeway and you're going pretty fast. You might swerve to dodge it, and if you do that, if you're on a busy enough road, your swerving is going to make someone else have to swerve. It's going yes. to make someone else have to swerve, yes. and on and on. There's a cascade here. And so I'm trying to study whether or not these cascades occur, when they have occurred, and what we can learn about them. Interesting, interesting. We have been talking with economist Akil Rao about outer space, the private space industry, and why adopting orbital use fees might be a great way to address the growing problem of space debris, or as he terms it, space junk. 
Akil, thanks very much for stopping by and talking to us today on New Frontiers. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Professor Akil Rao grew up in southern India and northern California. He picked up snowboarding as a graduate student in Colorado, and during Vermont's beautiful winters, he enjoys snowboarding the slopes at the Sugarbush Ski Resort. When time permits and he's not lesson prepping, teaching, or conducting research, Professor Rao is an avid gamer. Outside the classroom, students might spot him hustling to class, roving around the library stacks, or at some of his favorite hangouts in town, like the Mad Taco Restaurant or the Otter Creek Bakery. 